If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn back into uh, Zechariah. We're continuing on there. Uh, by the way, it's go to Matthew and then back up two books, and you'll find Zechariah there. It's all the little minor prophets get uh, mixed up sometimes, but that's how you'll find it. And uh, as you're turning there, um, just to put it back in context, where we're at, Zechariah has had quite a night. Everything that's happened up until this point happened, uh, it seems like, all in one night. All those visions that just came one after the other uh, all happened in a night. He had quite a night. <laughs> so we give him about two years to, to take all, in and, all that in and process that. So it's, with this passage before us, which is chapters 7 and 8, it's been two years since that night. And two years further into the construction of the temple, there's start, things are starting to go up, and it's, you know, it's interesting. We're seeing the land being cleared for the building, but the, the temple's going up now, two years in, and it's two years away from being completed. So that's the context, and the people of God who are there are seeing it, and they're beginning to ask questions. They're wondering things. Some of the traditions they have come into question. So that's the context. And by the way, we will be working through both chapters 7 and 8, but we'll work through it in pieces, so just bear with me, and we'll get there together. I'm just going to read the first six verses of chapter 7 to open up. And this is, by the way, God's Word. Um, so let's hear it now together. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Kislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regamelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests in the house of the Lord of hosts and to the prophets, Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month, as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, Say to all the people of the land and the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh, for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? This is the word of the Lord. I want to pray and ask him to guide us through it as we process this together. Father, we do indeed thank you for your word. Thank you that you did not leave us alone in our sin and brokenness. But you came, you entered in, and you gave us your word. You redeemed us. Father, would you use your word this morning to speak powerfully, that you might not leave us the same, but you might transform us more into the likeness of your son, Jesus. In his name we ask, amen. I remember a couple years ago, I think it was, uh, Stephen Spanger was with us. He's our church planter partner in Germany. And I remember him asking a question, something along the lines of this. I think it was in a sermon. Uh, he said, what is the greatest threat to the church? And as I ask that now, I can think of probably a list of things. And I'm sure you could come up with a list of things between you know, the political turmoil, the, this issue, that issue, moral decay and society. Like, we could build a list pretty quickly, right? A lot of things that may threaten the church. But then I thought about it as, I've, as I worked through this passage. And by the way, this passage really had its way in my heart. 
and exposed my heart. And I, I trust it will with you as well. But I, as, that, as it had its way in me, I began to realize that perhaps our own hearts could be the greatest threat to the church. What do I mean by that? Well, I have been doing lots of uh, research lately with interviews about tattoos. And that may sound odd and strange, but it's been fascinating. And I've seen themes as I talk to people and listen to their story and their experiences. And many of them come back to having been hurt by some form of hypocrisy. One uh, guy I sat down with not too long ago, he, uh, he sat down with me and he was ready to tell this story. And he said, well, every, my whole life has centered around one event. My father was a youth director in a local church when I was growing up. And he was caught in an adulterous relationship. And he said it wasn't so much what he did that angered me. It was that he said this and then he did this. And it was this hypocrisy that made me so angry. And so angry that he said he went not too long after that and he took a knife and he, and he cut a little slash in his shoulder and he said that was so I'll never forgive him. So I was so mad. I was so angry. And I spent so many years, I would even go back to that sometimes and, and open it back up just to make sure I remembered not, not to forgive him for that. And I'm hearing this story and I'm like, I, what, what do I say? He's sharing this with a pastor, by the way, which was not lost on me in terms of what the Lord might be doing and all of that. But he went on and he said, now I'm a granddad. And his tattoo, he put over that scar for his granddaughter. And it was his way of saying, I've got to put that anger away. He told me a few weeks later, he said, said, Michael, sharing that was like shedding a big, heavy burden and just letting it go. I share that with you because it makes the point that sometimes hypocrisy in the church can have huge effects. Now, that's an extreme story, okay? That's an extreme story. But guess what? It happens in much more subtle ways. And I see a lot of the subtleties in my own heart. I've heard stories of folks who have said, you know, I grew up and my dad was a leader in the church, but he was angry or distant and it hurt me. And I've really said, I don't want anything to do with that. I've had stories of... Uh, a local preacher preaching about staying away from this particular person because they were into gothic stuff. And that person said, well, what's the church there for me? What, what's, what am I to do with the church? And these, these are all stories that I'm hearing, and I'm just trying to listen and understand and learn from it. But again, the subtleties of hypocrisy can begin to hit home as I think about my own heart and the ways that I don't even sometimes see it. And I think, really, the point is that hypocrisy is in everyone. Inside the church, outside the church, we're all that way. Because we all have standards that we might set for someone else that we don't hold to. Or we may not, we we have them for ourselves, but we just don't do it. And we give ourselves a break, but perhaps not the other person. I think it's in us all. And perhaps the, the bigger thing, then, is... We're often unaware of the effects that it can have on others. Even the most subtle, the stuff we're not aware of, it can have uh, effects on the people around us and ultimately the very heart of God. And this is what we see in this passage. Chapter 7 exposes our hearts. 
Look back with me at the text that I read, the opening passage. So remember, the the temple's going up, right? And we're talking about this fast. They're seeing the temple under construction. And this delegation comes to to Jerusalem. They come to the the priests and the prophets. And they say, hey, should we continue this fifth month fast? Now, we've got to give some explanation for what that is. What is this fifth month fast? Don't try to say that too fast, fifth month fast. Uh, This fast was something that the people of God put in place because the destruction of the temple by Babylon happened in the fifth month, 70 some odd years ago during the exile. And so they said, we're going to have, we're going to institute this fast to commemorate this happening, to remember, to grieve, to lament. We're going to fast, we're going to abstain, we're going to weep. Over what happened. It's good, right? I mean, it's something that we, we remember how awful that was. But now, it seems like a legitimate question to come and ask, well, do, should we continue this fast? I mean, the, the temple's going up now, and we were, gre- we were fasting because it got destroyed, and it's being rebuilt now. So, God, we want to know what God says we should do. Should we continue this or not? It seems like a legitimate question. But God does what only he can do in that moment. They come to ask, and God peers into their hearts to see what's there. As he does with all of ours, he peers into our hearts. He's peered into my heart, even as I've spent time in this passage. He peers into our hearts with a question that gets at the question behind their question. He says, was that fast that you did, was, was it for me? Was it really for me? Or was it because of all that happened to you? Was it really for me? And it gets them wondering. <laughs> and of course, we know what God's getting at, that it was for them. Because he goes on and says, when you eat and drink, is it not for yourself? So perhaps this fast, was it also for you? Were you really grieving me and what happened And how this made me feel, your rebellion that caused all of this, was it for me? And and you can actually look a little bit closer at how they approach God, at the subtleties of what's going on there. when When it says that they went to entreat the favor of the Lord, in verse in verse two. Uh some of the commentators say it could quite literally be translated to stroke the face of God. To entreat the favor of the Lord could be to stroke the face of God. And it almost gives this picture of, oh God, won't you give us an answer? Tell us if we're doing the right thing or if we should do something else. It almost seems a little bit patronizing. And then they say, you know, should we keep this, this, uh, should we weep and abstain in the fifth month, in the fifth month, as I have done for so many years? There's even an exaggeration there. Look, we've done this for so long, God. Haven't we done a good job? Could we stop now? Or can can we can you restore our comforts? Can you you begin to hear the the voice of perhaps the elder brother and the prodigal son? You know, the younger son, he's the the one that's sort of in the spotlight in that story, and he goes off. And he lives it up and rejects the father and takes all his stuff and just squanders it. But then he comes back, right? And the father welcomes him and says, hey, we're throwing a party for you. And the elder brother's over there like, 
Where's my party? I've been here this whole time. I've been here serving you this whole time. Where, where's my stuff? Father says, you've always been here with me. We hear the voice of the elder brother, and perhaps, well, I hear the, the voice of the elder brother in my heart. Perhaps you're with me. This exposes us to the subtlety of our hypocrisy. It may not be extreme like the story I told in the beginning, but it's still there. And God is drawing it out in only the way he can, as he does in this passage. What stirs in you as you hear that? Does it awaken something in you? Are you willing to let yourself go there? Are you willing to let God expose your heart? Will you trust him to do that? Will you let God's word lean in? What do you want of God? I know so often when I hear myself in my prayer sometimes almost asking God to affirm something that I'm doing. God, will you just like tell me if I'm doing this right or will you, will you help me do this? Will you make this go all right? And certainly there, it's all mixed up with mixed motives, but there's sometimes where I just want God to do something for me rather than say, God, what do you really want? How can, I, how can I express love to you? Because God actually goes on, in the, if you read on in chapter 7, he makes the point of what he told their fathers to do that brought all this calamity on. He said, hey, I told your fathers to render true judgment, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. Let none of you devise evil against one another in your heart. He said... That's where my heart is. That's what I care about, more so than the fast. But your fathers didn't listen. And this delegation just wanted to know, God, tell us whether we're doing a good job. I, uh, um, back when all of the, a month and a half, two months ago, when, when George Floyd was killed and all of this racial tension came back to the surface in our culture, one of... Uh, the, uh, one of the local moms in the community that Michelle knows was a, another room mom. She had made a, a post on Facebook. It was a video of her, and she was weeping. She was just sharing her heart. She said, I, I have a little boy who I'm raising here, and he's small now, but I, I'm afraid that one day he's going to be someone big, and he's going to scare somebody, and somebody's going to try to hurt him. And he, she was just sharing all this, and there were lots of comments like, hey, we love you. We're with you. Oh, we love your son. He's great. We, we love you guys. And my wife, who is a thousand times more thoughtful than I could ever be, she just reached out to her and said, hey, let's get coffee. I just want to hear a little bit more about this. And they were talking and just having the conversation. And at one point, Michelle just asked the question, hey, what does it look like to let you know that I care about you? What does that look like for you? And she just stopped talking and wept. So I think just asking that question and actually you actually wanting to know the answer communicates that. I tell that story because so often uh, I'll do something like the proverbial little comment on the post like, hey God, I love you. I'm with you. But do I really want to ask him, God, what does it look like 
for me to lo- show love and care for you and to really want to know the answer to that question. That, that's, a, that's a hard thing to ask, to approach God with, isn't it not? Just to be totally open to what God may have to say. I think it's hard because it's exposing. It's a fearful place to go because we might, we might be corrected. We might be rebuked. We might be exposed for something that we didn't know was in there that wasn't loving to God, that was more self-focused. It's a scary place to go. But letting God expose our hearts is our greatest good. Because it takes away, it strips away all of the need to promote self and hold and put all this effort and energy into a facade that looks okay and good. And even before God, we try to portray ourselves like, God, are we doing okay? But if we're willing to let Him expose us, it strips all of that away and we're once again left with our desperate need of Christ. That is our greatest good. And then to be able to explore the impact that that has had, this effort and energy that goes into a facade that says, this is who I want to be, this is who I want to portray to be, but this is really what's going on inside. And when others see that, I can tell you the image of God, even in the non-Christian, can can sense that stuff. But to just be exposed and say, yep, I'm a mess. Yep, I am a hypocrite. But here's the thing. Okay, so chapter 7 completely exposed my heart. And perhaps you're with me right now. You're like, whoa, wow. There's stuff in there that I just didn't even know was there. Our enemy... Satan loves to deal, I love how James always says this, deals in half-truths. Chapter 7 is half the truth. It's true. Yep, I'm a hypocrite. But God continues on to give us the other half, the whole truth. Because God expresses his heart as you flip over into chapter 8, and it is beautiful because the turn happens and God says, yes, This is who you might be. This is who I've exposed you to be. But here is what I say about you now. The opening of chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I'm jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I've returned to Zion, and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city. And the mountain of the Lord of hosts... Holy mountain. That is the language of a lover. I'm jealous for you. Yeah, I've exposed you. Yeah, your fast wasn't for me. It was for you. But guess what? I still love you with jealous love. And guess what? You're going to be known as a faithful city. You're going to be known as a faithful people. That's the other half of the truth. That is beautiful. (laughs) He says, do justice, love mercy, don't oppress. All these things I asked you to do, and yet, Israel, you failed. You were more worried about the fast. But I still love you, and you're still mine, and I will redeem you. He still says, mine, I will not let you go. He loves 
and redeems even the hypocrite. You know, the, the world will say, this God, especially this God of the Old Testament, man, he's harsh, he's rough, he's cruel, like, man, he's, he's tough. And yet the world will castigate the hypocrite, and we will, ourselves. We don't like a hypocrite. We don't like to see hypocrisy in someone else. And so we call it out. But God exposes it and then says, I still love you. You're still mine, and I'm going to save you. The, I've, I've, been, uh, I've gotten to do, or I'm in the middle of doing a round of premarital counseling. And I just finished up another round. I got to do a wedding yesterday, actually. It was, it was wonderful. And one of the, the elements of just going through that counseling, well, one is that, hey, y'all, I've got so much to learn myself. I'm still learning about what it means to be married. But, um, but one of the elements, and I draw so much from others, uh, like James and other pastors who have got some great resources, but one of the things that we talk about in, in marriage counseling is drawing out the family of origin stuff. That stuff comes out. We talk about that. And one of the things that I communicate to them in the, in the power of communication is that your spouse has the power to overturn a lifetime of negative verdicts that have been spoken over you. What do I mean by that? Well, I know someone who uh, grew up in a family and was just always told, you're an idiot, you're stupid. Grew up hearing that. Imagine the effects that has as a child. I know someone else who grew up saying, you weren't, we didn't want you. You weren't wanted. Imagine the effects that has. Being told that growing up as a child. Perhaps it stirs things in some of you. But then these individuals, when they were married, the spouse was able to say something far more powerful than all that, that that almost wiped all that away and says, no, you're brilliant. No, I love you. I want you. You are mine. And God redeems all of that mess. A spouse, so I communicate that in marriage counseling. The spouse has the power to overturn the negative verdicts. God overturns all the, the negative verdict that we might, that the enemy might say about us, that we might have in our own self-talk that our sin says about us. Even as I was working through this passage, I was thinking about, Michael, who are you to preach this? You're a hypocrite too. The enemy's saying that. But then God speaks this powerful verdict over us that has power to do away with all of that says, yep, but you're mine. You're mine. Are you able to allow God's voice to overturn the verdict that has been spoken over you for your life, your whole life? Whatever that may be. Whatever you're hearing, whatever the enemy is saying to you, whatever the enemy is using against you, and remember it's half true, right? Our sin is there. It's real. It happened. We've done it. But God gives the whole truth. He says, yep, but you're mine, and I'm going to save you, and I love you, and I'll never let you go. Can you embrace the power of the gospel? Will you let yourself shift from this need to promote self? Even as we heard in the the call to confession, that comparative goodness. Well, you know, I, I know I'm not great, but at least I'm not that as bad as, at least I don't do that, or at least I'm not like that, or at least I don't... 
And we get into all of that, and we play this game with ourselves, and then we do this self-promoting, self-projection of like, hey, I'm, I'm okay, like this is what I do, we do good things, but even the fast, like the proverbial fast, like, hey, look, God, I'm fasting, aren't I doing good? And we can move from all of that to be exposed, to be then proclaimed over us the power of the gospel where God says, you are mine and I love you. To be able to feast on that truth. To let go of the fast for the feast of the gospel. God not only promises His jealous love, but if you were to continue on in chapter 8, and I won't read all of this, but I'll just draw out a couple of elements. He paints a beautiful picture of what the city of Jerusalem will be. He says there's going to be old men and old women in the streets with their canes because of old age. There's going to be boys and girls playing in the streets. And it's a picture of peace. To be able to grow old in a city means it's a time of peace. Children playing in the streets means a time of peace and prosperity and blessing and goodness. He paints this beautiful experiential picture of a feast. And he says in verse 6, he says, is, is this too marvelous for you? If it's too marvelous for you, does it have to be too marvelous for me? It's almost like, hey, this, God, this picture's too good. I can't hardly imagine how good it's going to be. How, I can't imagine you actually still loving me when I'm exposed. But God says, it's not too marvelous for me. This has been my plan all along for you. That you'd be redeemed, that you'd be a people of peace, that you'd be a people of faithfulness. This is not a surprise to me. It's been my plan all along for you. So perhaps it's marvelous for, too marvelous for you, but it's not for me. Can you let yourself believe that God actually loves you that much? So, our hearts, our hearts are exposed. Chapter 7 just opens us up. And our hearts are here. The exposed heart of the hypocrite. And God's heart is expressed over here. We've seen that. God proclaims His heart. He says, this is what I care about. And guess what? I love you with a jealous love. How, what do we do with that? Do we, do we sort of say, alright, I hear you God. Like Now I'm going to try really hard to get up here. I'm going to try real hard to get to you. To this heart that you've expressed? Or does God say, well, I've got you up here, but just be real careful not to slip back over into all that? How do, how do the two come together? How do our exposed hearts and the expressed heart of God come together? Well, the Lord doesn't waste a thing. Verse 13 in chapter 8. As you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel. So this is where... Israel, my people, you were more interested in the fast than the things that I cared about and it had effects on the people, the watching world. Though, though you were a curse to the nations, I will save you. And you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. God says, guess what? All this over here, I'll save you out of. I will save you out of your religiosity. I'll save you out of your hypocrisy. And you're going to be a blessing to the nations. The nations will say, who is this people? And who is their God? I will save you out of that. 
What's the result? You'll be a blessing. And God says, he goes on, he says, here's my heart again. He says, the, he, he almost repeats what he says in chapter 7. He says, this is what I care about. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. He sort of repeats what he said in chapter 7. But he says it again after having said, I'm going to save you out of your religiosity. If you go into the, the New Covenant in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the promise there is that God says, I'll put my spirit within you. I'll put my law within you so that not only will you know it, you will be able to live it out. So it's in that context of God saying, I'll save you. You're going to be able to do this stuff. You're going to be able to speak the truth. You're going to be able to render true judgments and make for peace. All these things you will be able to do. And his love for us is experiential. Because if you look at verse 18 and 19, the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth month, the fast of the seventh month, the fast of the tenth month. These are all fasts that they instituted when uh, they were being conquered by Babylon. The burning of the temple, uh, the, the destruction of the city. There was a lot of things that happened. And they said, we're going to fast over this. And we're going to fast over that. And we're going to fast over this. And God says, all those fasts shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love truth and peace. God says, God never answered the question, by the way. He didn't say, yeah, you can stop it now. He said, it's going to become irrelevant. Because you're going to be so overjoyed by the fact that I, I showed you who you were. I showed you your heart. But then I said, guess what? I'll save you out of it. You're mine and I love you still. You'll be my people and you're going to be a blessing to the nations around you. So, if you want to fast... I. Sure, go ahead, but it's going to be a feast, really. So it's kind of irrelevant. <laughs> the fast isn't removed, but celebration is instituted. And the redeemed hypocrite becomes so captivated with the Lord that they love what he loves. They love justice, they love truth, they love peace. No false oaths. We celebrate and move from self-focused fasting to God-glorifying feasting. And here's the most amazing thing that God does in all this. Not only does He expose our hearts, not only does He proclaim His heart for us, but then He's, pres he's so present with us that the, the watching world around us takes note. But not only take note, they do a little bit more. Look at how the chapter Ends. Okay, this is exposed religious hypocrites, redeemed, saved by God, and now ends like this in verse 20. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, people, people shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities, the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let's go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples. And strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let's go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. 
What does he mean by taking the hold of the robe of a Jew? Well, there is one Jew who many people took, the, took hold of his robe. It was Christ. Because they knew who he was when they took hold of his robe. They knew that God was not only with him, but that he was God and he was the Messiah. And the nations take hold of Christ. But also in this context and what they're hearing is, hey, it sounds like we're going to be a redeemed people that the nations actually want to be with because of our God. God takes the redeemed hypocrite and is so present with them that the world around us takes note and says, I want to be with you. I'm taking hold of your robe. I'm going where you're going. I'm going to be with you. Is there something about you? God seems present with you. I don't know how to explain it, but I'm with you. Are we willing to let that person take hold of our robe and go be with us? Are we willing to let that happen? There was uh, once a story told of a wealthy man who gave a party. He had it planned, all laid out. The day came for the party, and he sent out his people. He said, go tell everybody I've invited to come for the parties today. It's all ready to go. Come, tell them to come on. And when everybody went out to invite people, there was excuses made. Well, I've, I bought some land, and I, I need to go check it out, so I can't make it. Sorry. Uh, I bought some farm equipment, and I, I got to go tend to that, so sorry, I can't make the party. Well, I just got married, so I can't come. I'm sorry. The master was very upset because he wanted to feast with his people. But his people didn't want to come. And so he said, "Go, just go out there into the streets in the city and just gather whoever you see. I'm going to party. We're going to celebrate. Get whoever in here. I don't care. And the, his, his workers said, yeah, we've already done that. They're here. There's still room. Guess what? We still have room for more people. The master said, go to the furthest out, go out to the highways, go out to the edge of town to get whoever. I don't care who it is, but bring them in here. We're going to party. You might recognize that story. It was one that Jesus told. It's a parable. And it was a parable about the kingdom of God and the fact that God throws a feast for his people. Will we go to the feast? Will we, will, we, uh, will we take up that invitation and go celebrate? Will we be like the servants to, go, to be willing to go out to the furthest out person, out to the highways and the hedges, and to let someone else take hold of our robe and be with us? Are we willing to go out there to be a blessing, to let God's presence go with us? The image of God in the non-Christian, can sense whether we really want them to take hold of our robe. Just back to my friend that I spoke about at the beginning, uh, who shared a story about his father and was so hurt and has put away the church ever since then. And he's now a granddad, and he's still, he's never gone back to the church. But he shared that story with a pastor, (laughs) And I didn't know what to do with it. I just sat there and listened. But he said a weight was thrown off that day. He wet, he, just the other night, he was sharing that story again at, our, at this storyteller's night we had, and he wept. He lamented. Maybe he's taken hold of, of a robe. 
But I listen to sometimes the voice inside of me as I think about me and Satan plays on me all the time. He says, who are you? You're just a hypocrite too. I think you and I can say to our enemy together, yeah, Satan, it's true. I am a hypocrite. But God loves and is redeeming this hypocrite. We can remember the whole truth that God proclaims. Will you allow your heart to be exposed? Will you allow yourself to believe what God says when He proclaims His heart for you? That He says, I love you with a jealous love. And are you willing to go out and be the presence of God? And are you willing to let someone in the world take hold of your robe and go say, I'm going to be with you? Because I sense God is with you. We have an amazing God who does amazing things. He takes hypocrites and he saves them, he redeems them, and is present with them so that we no longer hurt his name but draw people to him by them taking hold of you and I. Let's pray. Father, you are an amazing God. That you see us You saw your people back then. You saw the the people of Israel, the people who had come back. And you saw them in all their religiosity and said, you're still mine and I love you. Father, may we receive that truth once again this morning. The reality of the gospel that you said, you looked on us and all of our mess and said, mine. And you sent your son Jesus to die. Even so. May we receive that truth again today. May we live it out as we go out. May we be willing to be exposed and be willing to receive your truth. Father, we ask in Christ's name, amen.